Let me lead us in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you might speak to us as we see what you did in the past so that we might see what you are doing in the present and know how you look at us, those who trust in Jesus, and how we bring that message to the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever come up with an idea that you think will change the world. Uh, It seems that God has gifted some people with the ability to be so creative they can invent things that really change lives. And then when others find out about those ideas, they're ready to part with their hard-earned cash and shell out for an idea. Some people make their fortunes inventing great things, and others make their fortunes selling other people's ideas. You know, they're those sorts of amazing salespeople who who are able to sell tea to China or ice to Eskimos. Uh, But even the greatest idea in the world will not just sell itself. You, you, You need other people to know about a brilliant idea or otherwise it just won't go any further. See, the gospel of Jesus is the greatest idea ever. There's no better news There's no better cure. There's no better friend in Jesus. And in the first nine talks in the book of Acts, we've seen how a few hundred nervous followers of Jesus have now multiplied to being tens of thousands of believers all around the Middle East. You know, today's Middle East, it's around modern Israel and Syria and Jordan and up to parts of Turkey and so on. All around that area has now all these believers in Jesus. And one man we've been watching particularly is Saul, also known as Paul, the man who was intent on wiping out Christianity but has now become its strongest advocate. He spent more than a decade at this stage training and preaching and exploring how it is that Jesus is the Messiah who was always promised in the Old Testament. And when we left him last time, he travelled down from Antioch to Barnabas, with Barnabas to Jerusalem to give the other Christians some money that they'd raised because there was a big famine happening. And so now we read that they've come back to Antioch of Syria. And remember, Antioch of Syria is this new international hub of Christianity. Up there at sort of the very bottom of the modern Turkey. And so as we begin chapter 13, we now meet the key players in this new international culturally diverse church, and indeed they were culturally diverse. Verse 1, chapter 13 of Acts. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. And right at this special, unique time, really, in the history of the church, the Holy Spirit continued to powerfully direct the leaders. Verse 2, One day as these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul, two of those five men, for the special work to which I have called them. They're focusing on the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit gives them a command. These two men have an important mission. And so verse 3, we read that after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Uh, Yesterday morning, I saw a whole lot of people lay hands on a particular man. I was watching a live 
um, a, a, um, a, a cast of the the ordination the um, the service over in New Zealand, this live stream where a brand new bishop was being made, and it was very significant because not only was a new bishop being made, a new diocese was being made in New Zealand. Twelve churches had stepped away from the mainstream Anglican church because they had said, enough is enough. We cannot cope with the fact that you're not going to listen to what the Bible says about human sexuality anymore. They've walked away from their church buildings and their the minister's you know, benefits and entitlements and all of that's walked away from, and now they've started this new denomination and they're about... 20 bishops from all around the world, primates and so on, have all come down to Christchurch to make J.B. in the first new bishop of this new diocese. And what did they do? They stood around and they laid their hands on him. Not like it's some sort of magic kind of spell or something like that, but it's a recognition of saying, we are commissioning you for a special task. And that kind of thing can be traced right back to this passage. In fact, they even made reference during that live stream to this particular chapter of the Bible and this particular event. So they laid their hands on him, on Saul and Barnabas, and they are sent on a mission. They're sent on a mission. If that was you and you're told to go and take the gospel to the world, what would you do? Where would you go? What would you say? And when you get to that particular spot, who in particular would you talk to? Those who know a bit about the Bible or those who don't know anything at all about the Bible, those who are kind of religious types or non-religious types, and where would you actually go to meet them? How would you focus upon them? What would you do? This is the kind of uncharted territory that Paul and Barnabas have. And with that in mind, we now see the start of what's known as Paul's first missionary journey, and it's pretty exciting. And they head off by boat to the island of Cyprus. And we read that in verse 5, when they're there in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. And John Mark went with them as their assistants. Uh, what do they do first? What's the first place they go to? The first is they go to the Jews. The first thing they do is go to the Jews. And it's totally in keeping with what Paul has said in all these letters. What does he say? First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. First for the Jews, and that's what he does. And we don't get to hear much about what happened in those synagogues right there, but we read in the next verse that they then travelled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Fascinating. They've gone from one side of the island of Cyprus to the other and they meet this particular guy called Bar-Jesus. Now, who cares about this particular guy? What's significant about him? Well, what's significant is the person that he has aligned himself with. Verse 7, he'd attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. And the governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him for he wanted to hear the word of God. Uh, this is, this is the, the main leader of this particular town in the island of Cyprus. And he's a smart guy and he's interested to hear what Saul and Barnabas have got to say because everyone's talking about it and he wants to hear for himself. But what does his Jewish sorcerer think about all of this? Well, verse 8, Elymas the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, that's the Bar-Jesus guy, the same guy, different name, 
He interfered and he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Well, he doesn't want the governor to be listening to Saul and Barnabas. He tries to shut him down. Uh, Today, there are many people on both situations. There are some who are really keen to hear about Jesus, and there are some who are really keen to stop people hearing about Jesus. But the bottom line is, the message of Jesus is interesting. It brings up interest. There's been quite a lot of interest in the press this last week from a few things that the Archbishop of Sydney said on Monday night at our Synod and how it was misreported and the reaction to it and all sorts of things like that. People talk about the message of Jesus because it is interesting. Maybe you're here with us because you once came in thinking, I'm interested about Jesus' stuff and I want to find out more. The message of Jesus is interesting, but there are people around like Elamas as well. They want to try and put people off following Jesus. They don't want people to know the truth and enjoy life to the full. So what does Saul do when this false prophet is hanging around trying to block his preaching? Well, check this out. It's pretty full on. Verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. And instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes and he began groping around begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. That's not the normal approach I take to evangelism. And I suspect you probably haven't either. Oh, so you don't really like people talking about Jesus. I strike you down! (laughs) Whoa! Uh, But what we do see in this unusual situation is that Paul names what is really behind all of this. And that is that any attempt really to stop the gospel, all attempts to stop the gospel, are satanic. They're from Satan. Satan doesn't want people knowing about Jesus. The message of Jesus is the best news around, but he wants to block people from hearing it. And so whether it's a very blatant situation like Elamas the sorcerer or just far more subtle, nonetheless it's satanic. And all this had a pretty big impact on Sergius, the governor. Verse 12, we read read that when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. How cool is that? For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. He saw this stuff and he became a convert. It's like, wow, look what you did to my sorcerer. He's blind. You must speak truth. Well, after all of this, they leave the island of Crete and they travel via the port of Perga to a place called Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different Antioch. Okay, There are two Antiochs here. Don't be confused. There's the Antioch of Syria, which is the hub of Christianity that I talked about earlier on, right at the very bottom of modern-day Turkey, on the, nearly on the border of Syria today. And then there's this particular other place called Pisidian Antioch, which is a lot more inland in the middle of modern-day Turkey. It's, a diff- it's, it's actually in the area where the churches were in Galatia, where Paul wrote the, letters to, the letter to the church of Galatia, the Galatians. Anyway, there they are. What does Paul do? Well, on the Sabbath day, 
He went to the synagogue to speak to the Jews. And verse 15, we read that after the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, uh, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. And so Paul stood. He lifted his hand to quiet them and he started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. I think the synagogue is obviously run a little bit differently to how we run things here at Jamboree Anglican. We don't normally have the Bible reading and I get up and say, uh, John, oh, well, whichever John it is, come up and say some things. I might say that if I've forgotten to write a sermon or something like that. But, but generally speaking, we're not going to do it that way. It, it, but in this context, they did. Maybe they recognised that Saul had a particular message that they really, really needed to hear as a special guest. But anyway, here he is, he's standing up there and he's speaking to the Jews. Now, it does say God-fearing Gentiles as well, that's good, they're religious ones, but the point is this is a synagogue. It's a gathering of Jews. The Old Testament people of God, the Jews, they're there and now they are about to get spoken to by Paul. What does he say? Where does he start? What's the first thing he talks to them about? Well, we're now going to see him preach the gospel to the Jews. He preaches the gospel to the Jews. And he starts with the Exodus. Verse 17, The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. And then with a powerful arm he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people begged for a king and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What does he do? Exodus, Judges, or Joshua, Judges, King David, and then that's the end of his Old Testament bit. doesn't mention other stuff. Because then he skips straight to Jesus via David. He says... And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised saviour of Israel. Before Jesus came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptised. And as John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think I am the Messiah? No, I'm not. But he's coming soon and I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the sandals on his feet. At this point, he is speaking to the Jews and he says to them what John the Baptist said to them, and that is they need to repent and be baptised. The Jews need to repent and be baptised. And he adds his own warning to that. Verse 26 to 28, he says, Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. 
And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. He says the Jews at the time killed Jesus, but it failed. Verse 29, when they'd done all that the prophecies had said about him, they took him down from the cross, placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. He says it all failed because Jesus rose from the dead. It didn't fail for the good guys, but it failed for the bad guys. And this resurrection matters. Verse 32, And now we are here to bring you this good news, people here in the synagogue. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. It's not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body did decay. No, that psalm was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Can you see what he's doing there? He's saying the resurrection was planned and promised. The resurrection was planned and promised, and the resurrection really matters here in this apostolic preaching, doesn't it? He basically says the whole idea of the Messiah being raised from the dead is in the Jewish Bible. And so get on board with Jesus. And so he says, verse 38, Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness for your sins. Look, Paul's not just there because he's a history teacher and he wants to give them a history lesson or some sort of theologian who likes to join the dots between what was in the Old Testament and what's now happened with Jesus so that they can go back and say, well, that's very interesting, isn't it? He's doing it because it really matters to people's lives. We do this because there's forgiveness for your sins. Lives are changed. He said to these people in the synagogue, Jesus can wipe away your sins. You come here with a heavy heart. You've done things that make God angry at you and you're wondering what to do to get him off your back. God says, You can be forgiven because of Jesus. Through Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. But how? How do you get this fresh start? Verse 39, everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. Basically, he says at this point here that now you've got the option of something much better than ever was talked about in the Old Testament. You can now be declared right with God. And it all comes by trusting in Jesus. Forgiveness comes by trusting in Jesus. This idea of of being made right in God's sight uh, 
It, it all goes to the idea of the technical word in the Bible called justification. It, it's a legal term that says not guilty. See, when you come to Jesus and believe in him, he says you are no longer, not, you are no longer guilty in my sight. You are justified. This is what is available by Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, you're no longer guilty in God's sight. This is why when judgment day is coming, you're not worried about it because you're not guilty already. And Paul gives them this great offer, but with a warning. He says, be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. He's saying, make sure you get on board. Don't be left behind. And the outcome was pretty exciting. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and the two men urged them to rely on the grace of God. It's wonderful. He's got up there and said, listen, you Jews in the synagogue, I want to tell you how this whole thing ends. It ends with Jesus, so get on board. And they've got on board and they say, can you come back next week? And they hung out with him all during the week. It's like, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more. We've got to know more. And in fact, verse 44, we read that the following week almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. That's pretty cool if you're an evangelist. They say, listen, don't just come to the church. We all, everybody, we're going to go down to Reed Park, stand at the front of the pub here at Jamboree, and we're all going to hear you talk to us about Jesus because we're all going to hear it. And that's what happened there. But not everybody loved it. No surprise there. Verse 45 tells us that when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. This message of Jesus divided the people. Some of the Jews in the synagogue said, well, look, we've got our little thing sorted already. We don't want this guy coming in and wrecking it all. And they were jealous of the big crowds and jealous of the fact that they were successful. And they basically slandered Paul and they argued against what he did. And this is the response that Paul and Barnabas had to these Jews who were trying to shut them down. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you've rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, We'll offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. This is the second part of Paul's strategy. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And we're seeing it played out right here. First to the synagogue, then to the public oval the public square. Because after this, Jews, Paul preached to the Gentiles. He preached to the Gentiles. And the encouraging response from Gentiles was this, verse 48, that when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad 
And they thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. It's a terrific verse here, isn't it? They heard this and they thanked Paul. No, they thanked the Lord because they now know Jesus. They say, thank you, Lord Jesus. And we read in this verse that all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. It's predestination in one verse. God has chosen, but they have believed. Within words of each other, in the one phrase, we see both happily coexisting, as they should for us as well. But what's the response then from the Jews? Well, not quite as positive. For we read that the Jews then stirred up the influential religious women and leaders of the city. They incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, when you have true peace in your soul, physical attacks ultimately fail. It's like, you think you can stop me following Jesus by bashing me up? Really? I have peace in my soul. I have certainty for eternity. I know my creator and my creator looks at me as not guilty, as his very child. And so despite this violence, the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful outcome. And so with that, they then leave and go to Iconium. They go to another place. And then after that, they do the same sort of thing. They preach to the synagogue and so on, and then they leave Iconium, thrown out of there, and they go to another place, this time to Lystra and Derby. So I'll skip a few verses for time's sake. And we see in chapter 14, verse 8, that while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he'd never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized that he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? It's a little bit like when Peter and John went to pray, they met a lame man on the way. They asked him for arms, he held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's just kind of like that, except this time it's not Peter and John, it's Paul. And what's more, the response is, I don't know if he went walking and leaping and praising God, but he certainly jumped to his feet and started walking. But look at what happened with the people around them. This is a bit weird. Verse 11, the crowd saw what Paul had done. They shouted then in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. Uh, that didn't happen back at the temple, but it did happen here in Gentile land. All these people thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. Now, if I go and do scripture next door at the primary school and the kids are quite impressed with what I've told them about Jesus, I'm not expecting them to suddenly bow down and worship me as God. Uh, that'd be a bit awkward, amongst other things. I'd say, no, you've missed the point. I'm talking about Jesus the God. I'm just a guy who tells you about it. And that's the same response that Paul has too. Paul and Barnabas say, friends, why are you doing this? We're merely human beings, just like you. We've come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things that you worship 
and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. This is a different kind of message to what he said in the synagogue. You notice that? The other message was specifically to a Jewish audience and people who were Gentiles but had become converts to Judaism. But here they're with complete pagans. And where do they start with all of this? doesn't talk about the Exodus or King David or any of that. He starts with creation. Paul started his message with God's creation. He basically says, God is creator, we are creatures, and creatures are supposed to worship their creator. And what's more, he said, verse 16 and 17, that in the past God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. He says to them, listen, you've got all the proof you need. I mean, just open your eyes and look at the creation. How can you possibly say there's no God? And if there's a God, then how can you possibly not worship him? And what's more, his fingerprints are everywhere. You see, we live in a world where there are fingerprints of the creator on everything. In fact, we've almost, I reckon, atheists have got to work hard to say that there is no God. They'll say, I'll look at the maths, I'll look at science, and I just can't come to terms with the fact that there is something outside of this world, something that is spiritual, not physical. I can't get my head around that, so I'm going to have to deny all of this evidence that seems to point towards a creator. Because there's evidence of God everywhere. And part of that is the blessing of rain and crops and food and joyful hearts. Sadly, in our materialistic world, when things are going well, we're more likely to turn away from God. Paul was actually saying when life is good, you should then see that as being good and see that as worthy of God's praise. And so God obviously doesn't always bring the rain and sometimes he'll bring no rain, so that people will stop and turn to him as well. So in this drought, we are praying that God would send rain. And we're talking about God more, I think, because of the fact that the ground is dry. But either way, whether there's rain or not, whether it's drought or not, uh, basically, God is everywhere, and yet they don't believe him. Verse 18, with these words, even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. They're like, we don't care, we're getting our bulls, we're cutting their throats, we're splattering the blood, we're getting into the sacrifice stuff, and whether you like it or not, we're going to worship you as gods. Uh, And I don't know how much time that took for them to try and have this little tussle with them to stop trying to worship them, but eventually... Some people from the previous towns caught up with them, travelled all the way to hunt down Paul and Barnabas. And we read, verse 19, that some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. Can you see this? They haven't just said, look... Let's agree to disagree. Would you please stop talking about this stuff? They picked up stones and they started to stone him. This is the same man who stood by Stephen in Jerusalem, 
who was being stoned for talking about Jesus. Saul, who held the coats of those who stoned, stoned Stephen. And now Saul himself, Paul, is getting those same stones. And you wonder whether or not that memory came back to him at that point. Whether he prayed the same prayer that Stephen prayed to God. But whatever it was, the stoning was so violent that the Jews thought that they'd actually killed him. They thought they'd stoned Paul to death. One stone hits his head, knocks him out, and then the stones keep coming and there's blood and there's bruising and then they drag him out and he's left for dead. You might think that that's the end of the story for Paul. Certainly the Jews from Iconium would have. But what do the believers do? Verse 20, as the believers gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the town. <laughs> Tell you, if I got up and dusted myself off, I'd be like, where did they come from there? Where am I going? There. I'd be running away. But right back into the eye of the storm, runs back into town. Man, Paul has guts. He runs back in there, covered in blood, covered in bruises. And now he is there talking to them. And he then leaves that place and he goes then to where? To Lystra, Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. The same places that have also stoned him and dragged him and driven him out. And what does he do there? We read that there they strengthen the believers. They encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is just beautiful in its understatement. Saul is standing there, probably with eye sockets not aligned. You know, kind of he's been bashed up by stones with cuts and scars and bruises, and he's speaking probably through fat lips, saying, It can sometimes be hard following Jesus. It's like, no kidding. In his very body, he carries the scars of Christ. And he says, listen, following Jesus ain't always going to be easy. And he goes there to strengthen the believers. Uh, he might think, well, it might be better to strengthen the believers if he actually has some reconstruction surgery of his face first before he goes and says, oh, everything's fine. Look at my teeth. Look at my suit. Everything's happy when you're a Christian. Uh-uh. This guy gets bashed to a pulp and he's standing there saying, you want to follow Christ? Let me show you what it looks like. And that was what he called strengthening. And he said they've got to suffer many hardships. And the message must apply to us as well today. Don't give up when you suffer for Jesus. Probably when you go to your club or to your workplace or you're with your family, it's unlikely that at the end of your little chat about Jesus, they're going to pick up stones and start throwing them at you. It's unlikely that they're going to beat you up and drag you out of Jamboree and leave you for dead. Don't hear about that much happening in Australia. But the suffering is subtle and still real. Expect it. When it comes, don't say, I never saw that coming. No, it's coming. But don't give up. Endure hardships. But that's not the only reason why Paul went back to those towns that he had preached to. We read in verse 23 that Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. And with prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they put their trust. 
They have planted churches in these different places that they've gone and preached the gospel. When we plant churches, we take 40 people from our church and then go and meet in a school hall somewhere and we appoint a leader who's been trained from another Bible college or from a Bible college or something and they go in there as ordained ministers to run that church. But that's not the way it worked here. He went in, said, hey, you're a leader. We're going to appoint you as an elder and you and you and you as well. You're the elders of the church and you are going to be the ones who will rely upon the teaching that we've given you and you've written down and we're making note of, and I'm leaving you alone with the Lord. It's pretty brave in a lot of ways. But they did that by as they handed over these elders to the care of the Lord. It's an interesting phrase I've not really seen before in this way. They appoint the elders and then turn them over to the care of the Lord and say, okay, I've done my job. You're the Lord's man in this church. We trust the Lord. And off they go. See, in all of this, we know that whether it's stones or whether it's false teaching, God will ultimately protect his church. The Holy Spirit is with them and he's with us and he's with you and he will protect us and the church and nothing will knock it down. Well, we'll skip a bit, and they finally get back in these last two verses to Antioch of Syria, back to the hub, the hub, the place where, from where they sent them on this missionary journey to come to an end. And we read in verse 27 and 28, Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Do you think they would have needed to try and promote tickets to come and hear him. It's like, I tell you what, they'd be knocking on the door to say, tell us how the missionary journey went and what have you done to your face? You know, It's kind of like, you've been beaten up. How did it happen? Tell us about it. And so they did. And it must have been a ripping yarn. Because when you follow Jesus, it's tough. So what was the strategy? Well, he went to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's one part of the strategy. But the other part of the strategy, of course, is that he preached the truth, even when it was confronting. And he was ready to get bashed up for it. What's the lesson for us today? Preach the truth and get ready to be bashed up for it. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for calling Paul to be this missionary and we thank you for his courage and we thank you, Father, that we have not experienced the same kind of persecution that he did. But we ask nonetheless that you would strengthen us as we seek to show Jesus to our world and to talk to others about him. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that for those around the world where persecution is a lot more like Paul's, that you would help them to preach the truth and be prepared to get bashed up. Because, Father, we know that people can harm our body, but they can't harm our soul. Because we are now seen as being not guilty in your sight, as your precious children. And we thank you for this confidence, for this certainty, and we know that this will mean that nobody can get in the way of us being your friend, your saved child, your saint. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.